It's time for another episode of the Franchise Business Radio Show, broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge and insight of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at FranchiseIntellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at Franchise.City. And now here's your host, Pam Curry. Hello, this is Pamela Curry, the host of Franchise Business Radio Show. Welcome to another episode. Uh, this is a platform for bringing together franchise professionals to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and consumer. And we have got a rich group of guests in the studio today with deep, deep franchise experience. Barry, welcome back. Thank you very much, Pam. Exactly. Nice to be here. <laughs> I know. And we're going to be talking about emerging brands today. That sounds like a great plan. You got a lot of history, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it. <laughs> John, good to see you. Welcome in the studio. Thank you, Pam. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to having you on the show as well. We also have a third guest that's going to be joining us a little bit later, George, um, and we'll learn a little bit about him and what he has going on too. Uh, but what I'd like to do is this, I'd like to go ahead and kick things off with you, Barry, uh, sure. share it with our listeners. And you've been in the studio before. You've got deep, deep franchise experience. Right now, you are at iFranchise Group uh, as a senior franchise advisor here in Atlanta. Uh, uh, your professional career spans more than 40 years. Don't don't date yourself, Barry. Yeah, you got this gray beard here, right? <laughs> Very dapper. 40 years ranging across many different industries and functions, but really over the past 16 years, your direct experience has been in franchising, both as a franchisee and as an executive with multiple national franchise sort systems. Uh, as a matter of fact, prior to joining IF Franchise Group as a senior advisor, you actually served as the CEO and partner of Concrete Craft. That's correct. Uh, there you implement an organize, um, implement organizational procedural improvements, uh, which also init- initiated and led to the sale of the company of Concrete Craft. But naturally, prior to that, I also knew you had deep experience with Shelf Genie. That's correct. I was the uh, co-founder of Shelf Genie, and I'm currently the chairman of the board and one of the uh, shareholders. And on a, on a personal note, uh, you are a very active marathon runner and cyclist, and you also just reminded me that you've already hit Orange Theory um, this morning. Yep, last week I was in Death Valley, uh, did a hundred mile, 103 miles to uh, raise money for type 1 diabetes, and uh, the week before that I ran the Chicago Marathon to raise money for type 1 diabetes. So a couple of big endurance uh, events in a row, and uh, all for a good cause. Well, um, thanks for making us all feel guilty, but I do appreciate the good cause, and uh, obviously I've been a contributor to it. Tell us a little bit about one of your primary causes. Um, type 1 diabetes, my, my son Michael was diagnosed 12 years ago, and so he lives a great life at uh, 29 years old. He's insulin dependent, which is type 1 diabetes, and um, he uh, does well. He's in Chicago, lives in Chicago, and so I'm on the board of directors of JDRF here in uh, Atlanta, and our mission is to raise funds to find a cure for type 1 diabetes. I love it. Uh, having a sister with type 1 diabetes, I have a full appreciation for that. Uh, I also want to just share with our listeners that you do have a professional uh, designation in business management from UCLA and also have received uh, a certified franchise executive, what we know as a CFE uh, designation from the International Franchise Association. Uh, so I think it's fair to say you're pretty well equipped to talk about emerging franchise brands. 
Well, I've uh, I've emerged a few and sold a few, so um, been there, done that, so to speak. <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's talk about iFranchise Group. Exactly, what do you do? Sure. So, iFranchise Group is a is a worldwide global consulting company that helps people, um, either emerging brands that are just getting started or existing brands. Our corporate headquarters are in Chicago. I head up the um, southeast location with offices here in Atlanta. We also have offices in Dubai. Um, we're probably the largest franchise consulting company in the world. Um, I've been with them for five years. Um, I've hired the iFranchise group when I started Shelf Genie in 2007. So I um, paid them a lot of money, but um, they were very good. And um, after I sold my last franchise, company Concrete Craft um, that I was the CEO and partner of. Um, I hooked up with our franchise group and started working with them. And um, they specialize in emerging brands. Also, a lot of work with existing um, existing uh, brands, helping process improvement, cost reduction. Um, all the people on, uh, on our team have been senior level executives. Um, one of the owners of our franchise group, Dave Hood, um, Took Auntie Anne's pretzels from zero to 800 units. Wow. And so um, we have a lot of experience on growing brands, taking them from local to national level, and ultimately having an exit. So there's a lot of topics we can hit on when we talk about emerging brands. Uh, can we start here? Uh, when you think about an emerging brand and you're considering about getting into franchise ownership, what are the trade-offs between going with an emerging brand and a more mature brand? Well, you mean from a franchisee perspective? Correct. Well, you know, I guess there are people that like to be early adopters, mm -hmm. and the real estate market then is wide open because they're not all sold out in all the major markets. So some people um, take risks um, by, by being an early adopter, and they get so-called the real estate or their prime location um, before. So if you want to buy, uh, you know, a uh, startup brand, you can probably dictate where you want your locations. And I work with many of those companies right now. And um, then if you want a more emerging, you know, you want a more mature brand, you know, if, if you want to buy a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Wendy's or any of those food places, um, you're not <laughs> going to be able to pick. It's going to be a resale, right? Yeah. You can't just get in and say, hey, I live in uh, in Vinings in Atlanta or in Dunwoody and I want to buy this restaurant. Not not going to be available. Mm -hmm. So um, big advantage, of course, um, big risk, but much more big upside on an emerging brand. Yeah. Um, I like to say there's two sides of the business equation. One side of the business equation is having that deep industry experience, getting those proven methods of operation. And then the other side of the equation is understanding how to grow the franchise system. That's correct. Uh, two different skill sets. Sure, absolutely. And so from a franchisee perspective, um, by being um, early adopters, they're getting in on helping mold the franchisor as they grow and they have some input and say-so usually. Mm, um, mm -hmm. And so on emerging brands, there's key things for us to take on the client. I mean, we have to make sure for sure the economic model works for the franchisee. That is the most paramount thing in franchising. Um, and it has to be scalable. You know, it can't just be somebody that has a, you know, an idea and they're the only one that can perform it. That doesn't scale. And people have to want to buy the product and service. So those are three requirements. Economic model has to work for an emerging brand. The, um, it has to be scalable and people have to want to buy the product or service. Excellent. So what are, what are some emerging brands you are currently working on now? 
I got some great emerging brands right now. One is, um, let's say, uh, called Ninja Nation. So it's a takeoff <laughs> of American Ninja Warrior. They just launched uh, about three weeks ago. Um, they have three locations, uh, two in Denver and one in Texas, mm-hmm. and they are inundated with leads. And it's a great concept because it's physical. It's physical, um, you know, effort for adults and kids. And so they do a lot of birthday parties, and they got ten or twelve thousand square foot facilities, state of the art. And it's really a takeoff of American Ninja Warrior, and um, they they're doing great. Um, another one is Big Blue Swim School because everybody that mm. has kids has to teach um, your kids how to swim somewhere. Um, they have eight locations in Chicago. They've sold um, awarded fifty locations already this year, starting wow. in January. So um, they're just starting to get those opened. But that's a great uh, great emerging band a uh, brand uh, big investment. But um, the economics are very very good. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, to me, fifty and when that is—it's un- unbelievable, right off the chain. Correct. Scott Thompson is the uh, chief development officer of uh, Big Blue Swim School, um, and uh, they just been uh, owned by a private equity company, and um, they've been knocking it out and looking for multi-unit operators, people that have sold, um, you know, Orange Theories or Anytime Fitness, and they have a pretty big portfolio of cash and um, looking for the next new hot thing. Uh, what do you think is, a, I guess, what I would consider to be a natural trend for growth for an emerging franchise brand? Um, you know, six to eight units in a year, 12 units in a year is pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. Most franchisors have to get experience being a franchisor, mm-hmm. um, you know, unless they've uh, done it a few times. And so, um, you know, you kind of ramp up. 50 is a big number to get in five years. Um, I think uh, there's almost 4,000 brands in the United States right now, and there's probably less than 12% ever get to 100 locations. And so that's a big number. So 50 is a big number. There's mm-hmm. thousands of um, franchisors with um, 20, 30, 40 locations, and they don't get to 50. They're happy with their corporate locations. They uh, sell some uh, or work some franchises here or there. and mm-hmm. um, But getting 50 in the first year... Um, that's really something to to watch for. Agreed. Um, are you? Um, uh, are you? I know you get invested in a lot of different uh, franchises and businesses. Um, are, are you currently getting involved with any franchises personally? Yeah, I do. Um, I, you know, I, I look for opportunities where there's a market niche. Um, I'm in, I'm one of the investors in a in an emerging brand called Made Sewing, and so kind of like oh, who wants to do sewing? Well, <laughs> sewing is kind of a lost art, mm-hmm. and um, so this is after school programs and summer camps, home based business, so no brick and mortar, no uh, very little overhead, and we've just launched. Uh, matter of fact, we just had our first discovery day a couple weeks ago. We have our first franchisee in Texas, and so we hope to grow that to a national brand. And ultimately, the plan is to um to exit. Um, I'm a little getting a little older, and um, so I sold Concrete Craft. Um, I founded Shelf Genie, and that's uh, 160 locations, and we'll exit that um, coming up here in the next hopefully uh, year. And with Made Sewing, it's a five-year plan to uh, grow and regionally, nationally, and then ultimately have an exit. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, back to iFranchise Group, because there are, when you're taking a brand and growing it, there are a lot of roles to be played. Uh, at iFranchise Group, what what are the services that you offer? Do you sure. just do operational sales, all of the above? Yeah, so we're gonna we basically take um take an emerging brand all the way from uh you know, embryonic stage to the goal line, so to speak. So we do a lot of strategic planning first 
financial modeling, benchmarking against other companies, basically all the um, rules and decisions that have to go into the legal franchise disclosure document. Mm. Then we have an operations team that does operations manuals and training programs. Um, they specialize in that. You know, a good operations manual is three to 500 pages with a lot of detail. Training programs could be twice that um, as far as an hour by hour outline to train franchisees. Then our marketing team kind of comes in and does brochures, websites, all the social media type um, things to do lead generation. And then we have a sales training um, program on how to award franchisees to uh, for the emerging brand who doesn't know the legalities of talking to people that they, and they have to learn how to take a prospect or an inquiry all the way through the process. And then we have ongoing consulting where we become the mentor for the franchisee or the franchisors for a whole year. Mm-hmm. And so um, we know how to grow brands to a national level and we help those emerging brands, you know, kind of get up going, get the first five or 10 going, set up franchise advisory councils and then grow. And then we kind of like let them out on their own. <laughs> It uh, sounds like you're raising a baby and then yeah. give them wings to fly, right? We have about 28 people full-time on staff at, at uh, iFranchise Group. And um, so we ha- handle a, a myriad of services from just getting started to launch. That's great. And Barry, if someone wanted to get in touch with you uh, and learn a little bit more about your services and offerings, how would they go sure. about doing well, that? Well, iFranchiseGroup.com is our website, and you'll see uh, tons of uh, t- uh, video testimonials on that. Uh, my email is bfalcon at ifranchisegroup.com, um, and my uh, phone number is 404-518-8858. Excellent. Thank you. So glad to have you back on the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'd like to um, go to my next guest, which, believe it or not, we go way back. Welcome, John. Thank you, Pam. <laughs> it's so good to see you in person. And, nice uh, to see you. Obviously, you've seen all different sides of the franchise world yourself, um, obviously on an emerging level as well as on a mature level. Um, currently, um, John actually is a home investors franchisee for nearly 20 years. Right. Uh, and we're going to talk about who is home investors because I have, a lot, I have a feeling a lot of people don't even know who home investors is but they know your ad. That's true, Pam. We have advertised the name of our company on billboards for the better part of 20 years, and people tend to know us by our advertising slogan, which is, We Buy Ugly Houses. Mm-hmm. In the real, ta- real estate space. That's right. Single family real estate. And you personally have bought and sold over 650 houses in the first 10 years? Correct. Here wow. And you are now a partner in several franchises. Right. Mm, right. Well, congratulations. And... Uh, I'm just curious, did you get in on the ground level with Homevestors, or where were they when you entered in? Close to the ground level, Pam. Uh, I bought a franchise in late 2000. I was the 50th franchise awarded, and there are now a little over 1,100. Wow. Yeah, you broke the, yeah, you broke, <laughs> broke the trends then. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the market. Uh, we Buy Ugly Houses is, you know, real estate. Um, it has an ebb and flow, just like a lot of things. Is it still a good market to buy and sell houses? Yes, Pam, it is. Most markets are good. Uh, this market is pretty healthy. It has slowed down a little bit, but interest rates are still very low. Um, there's a, sort of a recurring uh, supply of houses. Houses get older every year, obviously. Mm. Some are neglected, and they need to be recycled. So we have a uh, recurring source of leads and, and properties to rehab. Um, 
the, the fact that interest rates are low in combination with the fact that there is an undersupply of affordable homes in this country, it, today it's a very healthy market for us. That makes sense. And okay, so we talk about getting those good deals, right? And I would say you are a marketing advertising engine. We buy ugly houses. How do you find the good deals? Great question, Pam. That is the universal question for all real estate investors. If they could find enough houses to rehab and get them at the right prices, they would. the business would be easy. But it's not easy because those houses are hard to find. Uh, Homebusters takes a fairly unique approach to this. We spend tens of millions of dollars every year advertising directly to the public, and they reach out to us. And we call it a hidden city of sellers, uh-huh. and we have a fairly constant stream, actually a heavy stream of sellers calling us on a daily basis, asking us to help them exit a problem property. Uh, sort of a distressed situation. Right, right. So it's it's a business for you, but at the same time, you're really helping out someone who's in a situation. Right. Uh, and how do, uh, so how do you go about making money buying and selling? Like any other business, Pam, it is not as easy as it looks like from the outside. Um, mm-hmm. You can make money, but you've got to first buy it right. Right. You've got to know what to do and what not to do to a house and what to spend doing that. And then you've got to know how to exit, uh, meaning market the house and get it sold. Mm-hmm. And each of those is a unique set of skills, and uh, that's a landscape that's full of landmines. You know what? And, and right now we see all the shows about flipping houses and homes and everything. Right. Oh, I can do that. Right. Little do they know. Looks easy on TV. <laughs> right, on TV, right? There's always, a, I always share with people, you know, even a business can look simple on the outside, but there's always nuances to every little business. Right. Homevisors has developed a uh, business model develop, or built around uh, what they call development agents. Mm-hmm. And development agents are experienced franchisees that are paired with new franchisees so that the new franchisee has a pretty much full-time business coach. They're full-time available. And the experienced franchisee is there to help the new franchisee avoid those landmines and get from point A to point B without any major explosions. Um, To become a franchisee, do you need to have your real estate license? No, you don't. Great question. Um, More than half of our new franchisees every year are experienced franchise investors, but most of them are not real estate agents. They don't need to be licensed. Some of them are, but it's not necessary. And, um, you know, if someone wanted to look into becoming a franchisee, what does that look like for a franchisee? Well, it's a, uh, first of all, it's a full-time gig. Uh, Mm -hmm. This business, like any business, works better uh, if you put time and energy into it. Makes sense. Um, Our franchisees that focus on this full-time and execute correctly uh, do very well. We have a few that try to do it part-time and don't really give it the time or attention, but uh, they tend not to be the top performers. But the day in the life of a franchisee for us is... We get calls, we go out and uh, interview sellers, ask them what their situation is, what they need, what they want, what they hope for, and if there's a real estate component to that, we offer them one solution Mm. and wind up helping people, as you said, get out of problem properties. And to buy a property uh, can be a cost, takes money, right? Right. What about the funding side of purchasing these properties? There's no shortage of funding for real estate investors these days. Pam, our franchisor offers financing for franchisees, ah, okay. but there are a whole lot of other sources out there, and 
franchisees are free to go to whatever source they want. They're not required to borrow money from the franchisor. But you do have an in-house program if, they, if they would like right. that. And that's used quite often by new franchisees until they learn the market and learn to find other sources of funding. They use the franchisor's funding, which is very competitive. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It, right. it does. So you've had the back offs. And what about going in and having the knowledge to assess a home and what you should pay for it? Right. That's We teach that. Uh, okay. All new franchisees spend a week in Dallas at uh, new, uh, new franchisee training. Mm-hmm. And when they come out of that training, they're handed off to their development agent, who is experienced and been successful, and they basically hold their hands through the process. <clears throat> we do have software that, <clears throat> excuse me, is a is a tool. We it's a tool that allows a franchisee to walk through a house, basically check boxes for what's needed. Okay. New roof, awesome. new paint, new carpet, and so forth. And if they fill those forms out at, uh, accurately, it tells them pretty much what the house is going to cost to fix. And it's my understanding that there is more than one revenue stream for a franchisee. Uh, it's not just potentially flipping homes. Right. What are some other potential yeah, revenue streams? Great question, Pam. A lot of franchisees build uh, substantial rental portfolios. They buy houses at very distressed prices. They fix them up and sell the majority of them. But we have a number of franchisees that have uh, dozens to hundreds of rental houses. Mm-hmm. And that creates a very uh, healthy, passive revenue stream. Makes sense. Uh, right. What a great model. I can understand why you <laughs> emerged to such a mature brand and system. How, again, how many units? A little over 1,100 now. Congratulations. And where are you headquartered? Dallas. Dallas. Okay, excellent. And if someone wanted to uh, learn more about you outside of contacting me, how right. would they go about doing that? The website is homevestorsfranchise.com. HomeVestorsFranchise.com. Right. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, John and I go back to the early 90s, so it's fun to see him on his second round of being highly successful in the franchise world. Thanks for having me, Pam. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our next guest, who is also a fellow uh, podcaster. Hey, George. Hey, Pam. How are you doing? Excellent. So excited to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. Uh, George and I kind of, we have a little bit of history, too. Yeah, we've known each other for a minute. (laughs) Real quick, before we dive into the franchise world, I know that you're a fellow podcaster. Share with us uh, what your podcast is. Sure. I I am one of the co-hosts of a podcast called The Funniest People I Know. It's actually an original radio. Radio show done for the GARS network, the Georgia Radio Reading Service, and that's a network that was created for the visually impaired. So they usually read books, magazines, newspapers, and they wanted to do an original comedy show, and they brought us on, and then we turned it into a podcast. I love it. Well, you know I can appreciate that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we really enjoy doing it. Okay, so now I feel like you have entered into this world a little bit differently than uh, John and Barry. Um, I feel like you were born into the entrepreneurship yeah, In some way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Tell us a little bit about your background and the history of how that happened. Well, my I work with a restaurant in Atlanta called Grecian Euro. We're Atlanta's mm-hmm. oldest Greek restaurant. And my dad created it in 1982 when I was an itty-bitty. 
And so people say that I've been working at the restaurant as old as long as I was old enough to hold a spatula. But I used to go behind <laughs> him as he made salads fresh every morning, and he'd put the tomatoes on the salad, and I'd steal the tomatoes from the salad. And so I, you know, just grew up in the restaurant world, and uh, over the course of many years and many locations, turned it into a franchise. That's right. And how long ago did you start franchising? Uh, 2013. 2013. And, uh, right now you have, uh, in that 30 year span, right, uh, with your, with your dad, how many units did you open up that were family owned and operated? We have six family owned and operated locations and then one franchise. Congratulations. And let's talk a little bit about, I mean, if you don't mind sharing, because I, I think your father's story is is a neat one, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Immigrant founder, it's a generational family business. It really is the American dream. Yeah, absolutely. So dad uh, moved to Atlanta in his 20s, and he had no idea what he was going to do. And he worked in some factories, and then he worked in restaurants. And he had always had a, an idea for a sauce recipe for euros, because he doesn't like tzatziki. The traditional cucumber yogurt sauce. He doesn't care for it. So he made a gyro with the sauce and people thought they liked it. And one day he found a little hole in the wall down by the Atlanta airport, 900 square feet. And he, you know, opened up a little restaurant. He was a one man shop. You know, he made 80 bucks on the first day and he could only afford one day's worth of groceries at a time. So he'd take all the money he made, go to the grocery grocery store buy the groceries for the next day he made everything fresh because he couldn't waste and so so those are some of the traditions that he started mm. just being a one day uh, so the lot that we do that kind of continues that so we were you know hand cutting potatoes before it was cool because he couldn't afford a french fry cutter <laughs> i love it uh, so obviously things have progressed tremendously since uh, the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And your, your father. Um, so what are some of the, the trends that you've seen in the food industry and specifically for Grecian Euro? Well, we've... We've definitely noticed uh, for Grecian Euro, you know, for years and years and years, we were the only Greek restaurant in the city. Uh, and then another one pop up here and there. And we were named Best of Atlanta, Best Euro, Best Greek year after year. And then another Greek restaurant opened and it was a five-star restaurant. And they got rid of the categories. Uh, one time an editor told me, she goes, it's between uh, this dive and a five-star. I don't know how to pick. <laughs> oh, uh, so there was just... It was, strange dearth of Greek opportunities uh, for dining in Atlanta. And I've noticed over the last 10 years that has completely changed. There's Mm. lots of quick service and, you know, sit down dining. There's a lot of opportunity. So uh, while we were the first and the oldest, we now have a lot more competition than we used to. Uh, And I'm watching that the food industry trends are just really changing to customization and health focus. So people want things that are not going to kill them and they want to be able to be picky about it. And Mm. uh, those are things that luckily we kind of stumbled into. We had very healthy food and uh, we didn't have a lot of ingredients on our sandwiches, so it was easy to customize them. So people really liked what we were able to offer even as the trend has changed. Well, I can vouch for how good it is. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It is excellent. Uh, So I want to hear a little bit about communicating culture. You know, what do we mean by that in your world? So I, um, one of the things that's hardest in managing multiple quick service restaurants and i learned this during the recession when you couldn't pay you know more than minimum wage for anybody so it's like Mm -hmm. how do i make this minimum wage employee work really hard for me when they could leave tomorrow and get a job at starbucks or mcdonald's or anywhere else and so it was really about teaching uh my team how to build a culture and and making it a place that you want to work for and that you feel like you're doing something important and so we started focusing on how we can make 
our employees' jobs better mm. uh, and making it an awesome place to work. And so that's really become my mantra for the last five, seven years is making Grecian Euro an awesome place to eat and work. And by making it a job, people felt like they were making really good food. They were proud of their product. Uh, felt like they were doing something important. We got a, involved with a lot of philanthropies. Uh, you mentioned the JDRF. We were a longtime sponsor of the JDRF. Uh, yeah. These are things that really created a great culture. And that's why we don't have a uh, turnaround. We keep our employees for a long time. Ms. Bernice has been working for the company since 97. The first person I hired is still my district manager. That is uh, unheard on to people. of in the in the food space, right? Yeah, yeah, no. People usually just flip and they go from one restaurant to another. Mm-hmm. And once you can learn how to slice and make a gyro, I don't want you going anywhere. <laughs> it's like I don't want to train anyone else to do that. That, that makes sense. Well, hats off to you. Awards should be given on that front. Thank you. Uh, right, and hiring the right people and retention of them. Um, so let's go to the franchise side. Uh, you call yourself a, a bootstrapping franchise what do you mean by that so i i feel that you know you can you can approach franchising where you have a million dollar investors that are really just going to inject some capital into your concept and blow it up Mm -hmm. or you can you know bootstrap it and build it off of your profits and that's kind of what we did and i i definitely i think early on when i met you i had a very short timeline i was like oh we'll write an fdd and we'll sell a thousand franchises in the first year <laughs> everyone thinks <laughs> that right <laughs> and then reality laughs at you um yeah. especially trying to expand through franchising in uh, a credit freeze market that was a tough mm-hmm. sell um but mm-hmm. we just the whole company you know, we build a location off of the profits of another location. We have built the franchise company off of the success of the rest of it. So it's really just a bootstrap model and, and working from the ground up and really building something solid. And I'm, I'm assuming your focus in primarily is in Atlanta and the Southeast? Our, our focus is for corporate stores is Atlanta. We, we have the one franchise in Atlanta, but we're actually looking to franchise outside of the city. Okay. Um, and we imagine the you know, United States like a big you know, pond and we drop a pebble in Atlanta and watch the rings grow. So we want to hit you know, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Florida, and then work our way out. Makes sense. Yeah. And um, I think one really neat thing when I think about you creating this, uh, you know, communicating culture like you, you called it, um, that is going to transfer over into how you work with your franchisees. Yeah, that's that's always the goal. And I, um, when we were building the franchise, I went and spoke to a lot of people who were franchisees of other companies mm-hmm. um, and found out what everyone else was doing wrong and listened to all the complaints. I was oh, like, yeah. if I can build a company around not making the same mistakes everyone else does. So we really have built a franchise company that treats the franchisor like a partner and like a human person and not just a, a money pit that we can steal from. And that seems to be a good relationship. We, we really enjoy the relationship we've had with our franchisees. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I, and you kind of, you made me think of something there around just the, just the best practice, right? The best mm-hmm. practice of, of how you're going to work with your franchisees, establishing a specific culture, uh, hands-on training as an emerging concept. I mean, those are all of uh, all of the things, and if I remember correctly, one of uh, uh, one piece to your franchise model is when you look for a location, it's it's a retrofit, so it's an affordable yeah. concept to get into. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that people really like about Grishnir as a franchise concept is you can make it happen with a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars if you can retrofit it. Um, I don't like digging out dr- grease traps. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. So I find someone else's grease trap and uh, you, you could call me a vulture if you will, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I just keep an eye out for great locations that didn't make it with the previous concept and try to fit right in. And so that's made it a part of the bootstrap model, a very sure. affordable 
growth, and that seems very attractive to somebody who wants to jump in, but they don't want to drop you know $300,000 on an investment. Yep, I follow you. How would someone go about getting in touch with you? Uh, you can reach me online at grecianero.com, uh, grecianero at uh, Facebook as well, or you can email me directly at george at grecianero.com. It's so good to see you. It's you been too. a while. Thank you. I know. Happy to have you. And real quick for the podcast again. Oh, the podcast is Funniest People I Know, and it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you know what? I, I kind of just in, in a wrap up, I and mean, we've talked about emerging franchises, and 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 very. I, I'm going to kind of come back to you because a really hot topic right now in the franchise industry is when you are having to work with minimum wage employees, and how franchisees are being viewed in. Uh, let's just say, in the industry by government, right? Um, you want to talk to us a little bit yeah, about certainly that? certainly. It's a hot topic, whether it's California or Washington or here in Georgia. But, you know, minimum wage laws of pushing up minimum wage to $15 an hour is pretty much uh, starting to be prevalent in, in the entire country. So what that does to franchisors, the franchisees, they have to still make a profit. And so they can only increase increase prices so much. Ultimately, the consumer pays. Um, and so they have to be more efficient. They have to use technology. Um, they want to reduce turnover because training takes time and that becomes inefficient, just like um, you said about culture. And so that minimum wage law, um, while it's helping the um, rank and file people, it's also a, a lot more challenging on the franchisee. But it's all about taking care of the people, looking at process improvement, using technology, and taking care of customers so they keep coming back. Because everybody wants repeat customers. And um, and that's key. Of course, um, you're looking at food costs if it's a restaurant. Food and labor costs are the two key items. Um, but it's in any service industry um, where there's minimum wage. It doesn't really matter where it is. It's, um, you know... Pay those people fair, fairly. They'll do a good job for you. You'll have less training cost and less turnover overall and get on the uh, best place to work list. Yeah, and and as as many of um, you may have heard, you know, the International Franchise Association, the IFA, the oldest and largest um, organization representing franchising worldwide, uh, they really are taking a strong push in D.C. to really make sure that we have a voice on the franchise side because very often franchisees are being viewed as this big conglomerate. When really the franchisee is just a small business owner that's part of a big system. Correct. Well, the joint employer is the big the whole, uh, is right. the big yep. topic right now. Right. Where um in the uh, state of California, um they passed a law recently that the employees are could potentially be the employees of the franchisor, and that's mm-hmm. kind of tough because they are the franchisees are small business owners, mm-hmm. and the franchisor is not involved in their daily operation, doesn't hire, doesn't fire, and so uh, that's a definitely a big. Uh, challenge at Washington right now. Right now. Yeah. So I just, I I just like to bring that up because I I think it's good to know that in the franchise community that, uh, there is, there's a whole system in place and that everyone is contributing to really make sure that the franchisee is being put in a position for success. The franchisor is being put in a position for success. Uh, so there's some great organizations that are really supporting the growth of the franchise community and the franchise world, which, uh, makes it an exciting place to be. Mm. For sure. And Atlanta is the, is a hotbed of franchising. There's more 
franchisors here in Atlanta than any other city in the yes. country. Um, and so it's a very active community. You have, mm-hmm. um, you have the Southeast Franchise Forum. You have the Women in Franchise Network. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things going on on a regular basis here in Atlanta for franchising for people to share best practices while we're all in different brands. Everybody shares for the betterment of the entire industry. Absolutely. Uh, and with that being said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and we're going to wrap up this show. And I just want to thank all of you uh, as being guests on the Franchise Business Radio Show. Again, to go back to what we were talking about, a platform for bringing together franchise professionals to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and consumer. Uh, we're all in this together. Um, and I also want to say thank you to our sponsors. Check out www.franchise.city, a better way to buy a franchise. Thank you. Thank you again for joining Pam Curry and her guests on the Franchise Business Radio Show, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge and insight of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at franchiseintellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at franchise.city. Use the social media links here to share today's show and check out more episodes at FranchiseBusinessRadio.com. Oh, 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 o